Welcome to Mysterious Universe Season 30, Episode 13. Coming up on this show, we've got the secrets of the ant people, the alternating polarity bubbles of Sol, and the lunar disk that triggered the 1969 abduction wave. I'm your host, Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is under the weather, Aaron Wright. We're nearly one man down on this episode. He just dragged himself in, barely Look, got I'm out not, of bed. I'm not <laughs> under the Okay, I am under the weather, but I've dedicated... So I said to you this morning, I cannot let you do the show by yourself, mainly because I don't trust you to do it by yourself. So I'm going to be here. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I, I'm here to, to do a good show, hopefully, and we'll see how we go. Did you see your new lower thirds? No, I did. Up? I saw yours. I was going to ask you what yours was. What's this gnome historian? <laughs> <laughs> Pseudo-ephedrine ossifus. <laughs> Wait for mine to pop up later. Great. What have you got coming up? Oh, I've got some good stuff coming up. I, I went into this work from the mid-90s mm-hmm. from Adrian Gilbert and Morris Cotterell. I was more interested in Cotterell. Uh, he's a British researcher who's published a number of books. He's written... I'm sure we've touched on his work before. The name's familiar. Yeah, he's written something between 10 and 15 books, right. I think. Uh, so really prolific. fascinating guy, but he's... I don't want to say anything too bad about him right at the get-go, but he's like 50% genius, 50% pure schizo. Oh, that's good. Which is the perfect combination. (laughs) That's basically what's coming up in the Plus Extension. I have a segment which basically, if it was a confectionery bar, it would be a nut bar. Okay. (laughs) This is pseudoephedrine talking. Yeah, that's that's good. Just keep plugging along. I'll I'll just hang in there with you. So, uh, yeah, I I went into his work. Uh, You may remember, if you're a PLOS member, we covered the work of Philip Callahan on a recent PLOS show, and he did all this great research in, was it the 1980s, into the Irish Stone Towers. Yes. And his background, he was in the Air Force during World War II, and his background was in radio and communications. And he used his knowledge of radio to investigate. Just say it, he discovered dick frequencies. Yes, dick frequencies emitting, <laughs> phallus-shaped energies emitting, electromagnetic waves emitting from the stone towers in Ireland. And these are ancient towers. They're you know, nearly a 1,000 years old or well, over a 1,000 years. They've got to be over. More than that, yeah. Over, over a 1,000 yeah. years old. And um, he discovered that they gave off some kind of energy and there was speculation that this was used to uh, charge up their seeds for the crop to increase their yields or that monks would meditate in these towers. But I was looking at another guy who, um, his name was, of course, Morris Cotterell, who we just mentioned, Cotterell. His background is in uh, navigational communications as well. Mm-hmm. And um, he has this similar story. He was actually in the merchant navy, spent months at sea. And he started to notice when he was confined in this ship, he got to know all his shipmates, obviously, and he noticed that their behaviors and their moods really corresponded with their with their star signs. And he wasn't a big believer in astrology, but he he couldn't deny that there was something to it. So when he uh, got out of the Navy and he got his spare time and was on land, he started to do some research, dug up as much information as he could on astrology to see if there was something to it. That's such a thing a Capricorn would do. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, it led him not to a conventional understanding of astrology, but to an understanding of the magnetic fields of the sun. Really? Yeah, it led him in this totally different direction. Influencing people's behaviours depending on what time they were born in the year and then what exposure they were given to. Well, he went against the grain. He tried to upturn the whole, you know, 
however long the history of astrology is, thousands of years. He tried to upturn it by suggesting that it's actually based on conception rather than the time of birth. Oh, I've heard a few people, actually, even people in astrology have said this. You know, I've seen people, in fact, um, it, uh, Krista, who follows us on, on X or on Twitter, I've seen her sometimes comment on, you know, the actual point of conception being somehow influenced. I have to ask her for more details about that because, and not just her, I've seen multiple people kind of getting into, yeah, it's like, depending on when you're conceived, somehow influences the outcome of your star sign. I don't know the details behind it. Well, I think we've spoken about it from a Chinese medicine perspective, which which said that your constitution at the moment of conception, not you as the result of the conception, but you as in, you know, doing the act, your constitution, your energy levels, your thoughts, all would contribute to the outcome of the child and the, you know... Yes, very much so, yeah. Whichever way the child would end up. Um, so that that was always thought of in that way, but he he's tied his research into the polarities of the sun with this moment of conception, and he connects it to the Van Allen belts and electromagnetic radiation and all Do you this. Know what though, I'm actually almost inclined to be like, there might be something to that. Yeah, like, he's, I, I'm not like dismissing said, astrology either, but I'm like, mm. he's a convincing uh, guy with his arguments, but there's still that fifty percent where you think. Is he just nuts? Like, is he just piecing together all this disparate information and making these wild connections? But that happens with some people when you're in this field. You start to, the more that you begin to possibly understand it or just even, not even understand it, but dig deeper into it, the more that you become uh, disconnected from the reality around you. Mm. Because people are stuck in a certain paradigm and once you start breaking away from that, it makes you look crazy. Well, there is certainly an aspect of that because I looked at his later books, which I haven't read, and he's rewriting The Laws of Gravity. Okay. And really undermining what we think we know about the universe and, and everything around us. In a clear and concise and I don't coherent know. fashion. I don't know. Or I haven't read it. Just... <laughs> so, madness. What have you got coming up in your well, pseudo-ephedrine rant in I, the Plus Extension? It did become a little bit of a rant, actually, because I was looking into... I was following on from the, the Barry Taff stuff where he was, you know, kind of going into the idea that extraterrestrials may not actually, well, ghosts may not actually be ghosts. They may be extraterrestrials in some circumstances. And I wanted to see if there were, you know, other reports of similar sorts of experiences. And it just so happens that, you know, obviously I don't have the stats on this by any means, but if you start looking, you know, for details about this kind of thing, you find that there are numerous people that have alien encounters who have also had a lifetime of ghostly encounters. And it's like, well, why? I mean, are they just crazy? Are they prone to hallucinating? Do they have a, a mind which allows them to, um, you know, they may believe, you know, what they're actually seeing, but they've just got this wild imagination or is there more to it? And so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and I want to give you kind of um, two sides of that coin because I've got a story of a guy who uh, later in his life, he ended up getting what he called a download. And I know that's very new age and, you know, kind of crossing into the realms of metaphysics. Um, But essentially, he suddenly realized that he was a lifelong abductee. But also, he'd had this uh, entire series of encounters with ghostly apparitions when he was a child that kind of set the stage for his encounters later on. And then it connected with mass abductions. So I followed this thread of mass abductions, Mm. and I found out that according to one researcher, one journalist, uh, and you know, I shouldn't say it's just one. It's like, this is just a hypothesis, right? Uh, but there is a strange coincidence that after we landed on the moon and we left behind a little object, it was a small silicon object, right? And it had, it was about the size of uh, a dollar coin 
uh, and like an Australian dollar coin, maybe a little bit bigger. And it had very tiny inscriptions from all the heads of state around the world. And this was left on purpose. This was was left on purpose. It was like this little silicon kind of, you know, uh, artifact that was left on the moon, obviously. And it was more ceremonial than as, you know, having any intent. But just in case, you know, aliens are around. Well, lo and behold, a couple of months later, mass abductions in the town where the device or the item was manufactured. Oh, really? So I'm just like, okay, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. So I will reveal that in the plus section later on. Okay, so the book I went into, this is from Gilbert and, uh, God, I'm going to keep forgetting his name, Maurice Cotterell, The Mayan Prophecies. Mm -hmm. Now, I won't make it entirely clear why this guy researching sun magnetic polarities eventually wrote a book called The Mayan Prophecies. Is that, that suggesting that the end of times is coming through some type of Carrington wave? Well, it's but just been years since I looked at a book about the Mayan calendars and, of course... Because des- it all ended in 2012. December 2012, because there was that big prediction from so many different researchers. And it certainly did point to this uh, culmination in their calendar, this end of a cycle finishing on de- December the 21st, 2012. And after, you know, we had a, like an end of the world show back then and... You know, we covered a bunch of books leading up to the date, but since then, I haven't really thought about it much. But I went back to this today because I was following his research because of the the radio guy I was, I was researching on the Plus shows. And I realized that there really is something amazing about this ancient civilization and the way they tracked time. I'm specifically interested in the way they tracked time and why they did it in this specific way. Well, I've seen a number of people express this and I'm kind of now leaning more towards that because I obviously scoffed at the idea of the end of the world, you know, occurring in 2012. I'm quite arrogantly, you know, took pride in being there for the end of the world and nothing actually happening. But now, after what I've seen a few people say, and I'm tending to agree with them, no, no, the world actually did end in 2012, but it was actually <laughs> like the cycle, like the cycle, yeah, the cycle ended. We're in a new age. And what that was, though, that was decency and you know respectability. Yeah, yeah. And, and now since 2012, everything is upside down and it's only getting worse because we're in the downswing of civilization. Yeah, there is a good argument for that. So... Let me give you some of Cotterell's background. As I said, he was an officer in the Merchant Navy, spent months away at sea. And that's when, in the close confines of the ship, he couldn't help but notice the behavior of at least some of his shipmates. And it basically aligned with their astrological charts. He noticed that men born under the supposedly more aggressive fire signs were, in fact, more aggressive. Scorpios. Is that... Are they fire signs? I, I think they no are. Idea. I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Double check. I'm pretty uh, sure they are. Their aggression additionally seemed to be cyclic though it wasn't immediately obvious how this was linked to astrology. So obviously he was intrigued after he observed this and when he had some spare time on his hands, he started to investigate this subject. And when he was at home on shore leave, he went to his local library, he got out everything he could on astrology. I'm wrong. Scorpio are water. Sagittarius are fire. So they're introverted, (laughs) right. I've got some more information on that coming up and you might be surprised on where it goes. But he, yeah, he grabbed all this information. He started to read all these astrology books. But while he was digging, he came across this study that was carried out at the Institute of Psychiatry. I think this was in the UK by Jeff Mayo and Professor Hans Eisenk. The These guys did two scientifically controlled studies. They carried the first one out on uh, 1,800 people, 1,795 people. That's reasonably large for a study like that. Yeah, they did a second one on 2,324 subjects. 
And they were apparently able to show a correlation between astrological birth signs and extroversion and introversion. Okay. These, but just those two variables. Yeah. These person, well, they did like a personality test yep. and they were able to measure this. Now, people born under the so-called fire and air signs were more extroverted, whereas those born under the water and earth signs were more introverted. And these 12 birth signs, they managed to obviously line up neatly with these alternating months on the calendar, as you would expect with the horoscope. Oh, it's almost like it's the frequency or it's cyclic. So that midline there is, you know, basically the median. And obviously, as you're going up, you're getting more extroverted. So I actually matched this with my kids and it totally matches with my kids' personality. Really? My son is way more introverted and... uh, I can't, I can't remember his star sign now. He's born in July, so it's this one here that looks like sixty nine. I can't oh, is that remember. Pisces? I can't remember. I don't. I don't know the the star signs. I've never paid much attention to them. But suffice to say, it matched up perfectly with this graph and this research. And you know, Cotterell was aware that because of precession, though. It obviously doesn't match today with the constellations. The constellations, the, the sun is in a different position. They're all in different positions. So there's still an effect, though. So we started to wonder, there's obviously something affecting the individual, and it's related to this zodiac, but because of precession, there must be something else going on. Oh, so it's something that's more constant. Yeah, he said there could only be one explanation for this. What was important in astrology wasn't the starry background or of the zodiac, which he says kind of just acts like a clock face, but it was in fact some cycle related to the sun itself. And this is where he started to look into the effects of solar radiation and the like. Uh, He said, in other words, the root of astrology lay in solar influence and the variations of the solar year. So the question for him became... What could the sun be doing? What comes out of the sun that would influence us to become more extroverted or more introverted? What could possibly be doing that? Well, the sun, as far as I'm aware, usually operates on, what, 11-year cycles. And that 11-year cycle has actually been significantly delayed for the past, I don't know how long. Um, But isn't it like it releases, obviously, solar flares? Well, because of his background in radio, this is the first place he started to look. Uh, He was aware that you know, radio waves are affected by the state of the Earth's upper atmosphere. This is in turn influenced by the sun. He also knew that at times when there are many sunspots visible, radio signals are distorted, there's noise generated, and reception is difficult. It seemed to him that perhaps astrological effects could also be somehow connected with these solar variations. So he had a hunch that this could be connected to those sunspots. And of course, sunspots are they look darker if you look at an image of the sun, but they're actually um, much cooler than the sun's surface. And they they occur because of a, there's like a magnetic anomaly that creates this variance in temperature. And is that where flares uh, emanate from? I don't know how this is connected to flares. Oh, okay. But these spots, uh, as you said, they've been observed for a long time. I think in the 1600s with Galileo was mm-hmm. the first time they were discovered in the West. But recently we've seen these headlines over the last five years that sunspot activity has decreased significantly. So we're in a a really uh, low period of sun activity. But there was um, this discovery in 1843, he points out, from an R. Wolf who established that there's actually a rhythm 
in the way these sunspots appear. And that's connected to what you were talking about, this 11-year cycle, roughly 11.1 years. So at the beginning of the cycle, spots appear near the, the poles of the sun. And as this cycle progresses, as the years go down, they gradually manifest nearer the equator. And then again, they go closer to the other pole. Now, the cycle isn't perfectly regular, he says. There's uh, periods, like for example, between 1645 and 1715, no one saw a single sunspot at all. So kind of like now. Yeah, so there are moments where they're not like the normal cycle. But he said the fact that they seem to appear in generally regular cycles pointed to some deeper unexplained mechanism inside the sun's core. Mm -hmm. So this is where he started to look at the magnetic field of the sun. And obviously, the sun has a magnetic field like every planetary body, but it's not as simple as the Earth's magnetic field. And he goes through the mysteries of the sun's magnetic field, like we don't understand everything, obviously, but... What we do know is that there's two major components. There's a north-south dipole and there's also an equatorial quadrupole. So if you look at the quadrupole, it's basically like four bubbles of alternating polarity around the sun. And I think, I do I have an image of that? Something like that. <laughs> Something like... Close it up, it'll do. Bubbles around the sun. And do they move? Yeah, they're constantly moving, right? And because... The sun's equator is turning faster than its poles. Its magnetic flux lines, he says, get wound into loops. And it's almost like, he explains it like spaghetti twisting around a fork. Mm -hmm. And this causes these small areas of intense magnetism below the surface of the sun. So a buildup of energy. Yeah, and this is what causes those sunspots when that magnetic energy bursts to the surface. At least this is what we think happens. So Cotterell was now beginning to suspect that these variations in the sun's magnetism were responsible for these intrinsic differences between people according to their astrological signs. And he started to focus on this part of, uh, of his studies. Like he really started to look closely at the sun and he wanted to know what could be the mechanism behind it. So this is where he talks about the sun rating at radiating out all this energy, like you mentioned earlier. So we've obviously got all the radio waves, infrared, ultraviolet X-rays. Of course, we've got visible light. But there's also this solar wind that gets thrown out from the sun. So this is a stream of charged particles, ions, that are continuously thrown off the surface of our star. And that's what comes out in the flares. Yeah. And that was the Carrington event, which you know people are now becoming more concerned about may reoccur. And if that does happen in our far more technological world, because the last time it happened, what, was the 1800s? It knocked out a couple of telegraph lines and... Well, yeah, I think he actually mentions one in the 80s. Really? There's one in the 80s that took Nothing out... Nothing like the Carrington event. No, but it, it took out like a bunch of power grids in Europe. And right. there was a few days where the satellite communications weren't working. Uh, so this, this kind of outburst, this um, solar wind outburst, does have potential to seriously destroy our civilization. Like we've discussed Especially that on, on previous shows. But he said this wind is very thin and it's attenuated, uh, but it is extremely significant. It is the reason, for example, that the tails of comets always point away from the sun like inflated wind socks. He says it's not only comets that are affected by the solar wind, but obviously our planet as well. And this is where he goes into the, some of those examples like the Carrington event. But he says stretching around the earth and containing its atmosphere is what we call the magnetosphere. And this is where he talks about the Van Allen belts. 
And when this solar wind hits the magnetosphere, it distorts it and it gives it a kind of shock wave. And uh, I think he's got an image of that solar wind coming off the sun there. But he says many of the charged particles come streaming in through this skin of the Earth's magnetosphere and are trapped in these Van Allen belts. There, they are then accelerated downwards towards the poles by the Earth's own magnetic field and they come crashing through. And this is why we have the Aurora Borealis and the Northern Lights. Now, back in 1986, as he was putting all this together and starting to understand this, he essentially formed a new theory. He called it astrogenetics. And he tried to link astrology with solar behavior. And he was convinced that astrological differences between people were caused by the variations in this solar wind affecting the Earth's magnetic field. So the amount of uh, energy coming through would essentially influence the future development of the fetus at conception. And I've heard him talk about this. I was looking at some YouTube videos today, one of which I'll link to in the show notes, where he's talking about the time at conception where you've, you've got the sperm in the egg and you've got this moment where things can be seriously influenced. And he says it's at these moments where, depending on the activity of the sun, you'll have this influence go into the, the human being, so the, you mean, the, con- the conception. Like, I guess even what could affect, is he suggesting cell division? You know, because he's talking about genetics, right? So yeah. is that what he's kind of, you know, implying? Yeah, you know, the it's, swapping of- it's doing something to genetics. This is, this is what he's getting at. And he wrote a whole book on this, which is almost impossible to find. Uh, there's only a very expensive hardcover. It's unavailable on Amazon. But I will link to it if you're willing to hunt it down. But he says, yes, a, a newly fertilized human egg is stamped at conception with the pattern of the prevailing magnetic atmosphere, and this determines the astrological type at birth. So he says this conception theory was radically different, obviously, from astrologers, uh, radically different from our current scientific understanding. And the traditional understanding of the astrologers was that it was the planetary stellar cosmic forces at birth. Yes, but it's not birth. It's the actual moment of conception. Yeah, he was convinced that, no, it's conception. So he wrote astrogenetics. The scientists hated it, obviously, uh, you know, because it was too left of field. But the astrologers hated it as well, mostly because there's no practical application of this. Like, if you're an astrologer, you're giving someone their star signs, you're giving them useful information. You know the movement of the planets. Well, people know their birthdays, obviously. They know their star signs. Who knows when they were conceived? Well, everyone. What do you mean? You count back nine months. Yeah, but that's a rough... I mean, it's rough. Yeah, no one knows exactly. That's a rough estimate. Because he goes... He breaks it down into very specific fluctuations in the magnetosphere of the sun. And it goes beyond your twelve horoscopes. It's it's there's more divisions, right, which is why okay, it's so hard. It's very to, specific. Like you need to know the specific day and hour to actually get it right. And how are you gonna like? How are you even gonna find out? I think you sit your parents down and have a serious discussion. The <laughs> only way I think you'd actually be able to do it is is actually in, and down to the moment, right down to the minute, would be if you've used IVF. Yeah, that's true. That's the only time yeah, you'd yeah. be able to know that. So maybe they could conduct a study, though, from, you know, IVF. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. The only positive response he got was from journalists who thought it just made great headlines. So the Daily Mail. Oh, well. This is back Daily in the Mail. late 80s. They had these headlines like, the wizard who gets astrologers seeing stars. And he seems oh. to prove there's a scientific basis for astrology. 
Uh, this was followed by radio interviews on the BBC, and he ended up doing some uh, hour-long interview with uh, another program that was really popular. And at last, the subjects of Sunspot's solar wind and its effect on human genetics was getting a public airing. Maybe it's just me, but for whatever reason, it just inherently kind of feels right. Like there's a, a, I don't know, it ties in. I was just thinking when you were describing it there, like think about all the types of personalities we have on this planet, you know, and we're, we're living in a very divisive society right now. And we look at the other side, depending on whatever side you're on, and you go, how can that person think that way? And, you know, how can they, I'm like, well, maybe there's some mechanism built into the universe that deliberately causes human beings to be different. I think there's certainly something to say uh, about cosmic forces yes. influencing human beings on the micro level, at an individual level, and a macro level, at the 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 level of civilization. Yeah, but how much of it can be attributed to the solar activity? I mean, this that's up to him to prove. And he just really didn't get the response that he wanted from the scientific field. He really, obviously, wanted this to be treated seriously, and he basically got the cold shoulder. Of course. Uh, he did change jobs in 1989, though, and ended up working at the Cranfield Institute of Technology, which is now uh, Cranfield University. And this was a major turning point in his research because, again, this is the late 80s, so there's not uh, very powerful computers around. And he needed powerful computers to run the kind of calculations he needed to prove this. And it just so happened at Cranfield University, they had one of the most powerful computers in the country. The I think they had it. six. Yeah, the 486. Yeah, I think they had a supercomputer there. So what he ended up doing was he built this algorithm to plot the behavior of the magnetic variables involved in the Earth's rotation around the sun. And this had never been done before because the calculation was too complex. It required too much computing power. So he had three changing variables. He had the sun's polar field, which is on a cycle of 37 days. He had the equatorial field, which is on a 26-day cycle. And he had the Earth's orbital velocity around the sun, which is obviously 365.25 days. And to simplify matters, he used an equation based on snapshots of the Earth's combined magnetic field every 87.45 days because it, it gives you this complete mutual cycle uh, and that's the best way to calculate it. So he runs this through the computers at the university, and it takes hours and hours and hours to churn through this equation. It's like downloading Internet Explorer back in the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's late like 90s. downloading a like, picture oh. of a naked lady and just seeing it going beep, <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> coming back in 20 minutes. But what came out was sensational. In this long printout he gets, there's jagged peaks and troughs, and there's this cycle he can pick out with the data. There seems to be this erratic heartbeat, he claims, a rhythmic cycle that could clearly be seen. This graph of interaction had the fingerprints of whatever it is that drives sunspots, and it could clearly be traced to this 11.49-year cycle marking periods of intense activity, which was really important because this was very close to the 11.1-year cycle that I think it was uh, mm. that Soviet scientist, Alexander Chajewski. Chajewski? Uh, yeah. Early 1900s, yeah, yeah. like 1915 or something, he discovered this 11.1 uh, solar cycle. And I think it was Stalin who eventually said he needed to retract it because it went against the grain of the Soviet revolution. Yeah, right. Because his argument was that these solar outputs actually do affect 
human civilization. They can cause revolutions. But it didn't I quite don't like that. Didn't quite line up with mm. the Bolshevik Revolution. So Stalin said you got to retract it. And he of course he had to retract it. But his research was sound and it looks like uh Maurice Cotterell's algorithm at the university started to correlate with this. So he poured over this computer printout for months and he started to unravel what was his most important discovery of his career. The visual record of sunspots does point to this cycle, as we've said, 11.1 years. But Cotterell was now able to find evidence of this cycle in his computer-generated data. And he started to divide it into bits. So a period of eight of these bits, or eight times 87.4545 days, this leapt out at him. This seemed to be significant. And he called this a microcycle. And I've got some of his, uh, the breakdown of his numbers on the screen here. Don't, don't worry about, you know, calculating any of this. It'll all make sense later. But six of these microcycles, i.e. 48 bits, made a longer cycle of 11.49 years. So again, this is uncannily similar to the previous understanding of 11.1 years of the sunspot observations. And looking more closely at the data, he noticed that there was a cycle of 781 bits of time before the graph repeated itself. So one sunspot cycle is what? 187 years? Where are you getting that 187? Uh, D. Oh, the 781 yep. bits. Yeah, that's 187 years. He called that, yeah, the sunspot cycle. Right. This long period was the equivalent of 97 microcycles, but careful analysis of the data showed, whereas 92 of these were eight bits in duration, five were longer at nine bits. They seemed to contain an extra shift. So there was some kind of anomaly in the data where it was shifting momentarily to reach that total that he was getting of the the 90, it's, 92 bits. It's like the equivalent of a sunspot leap year. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So he started to think like, what on earth is causing this variation where there's one of these cycles that has a longer bit, like it's slightly longer. So he started to, you know, go back to his textbooks and speak to the experts. And he figured out that this is related to what's called the sun's warped neutral sheet. And the best way I can describe this without waffling on about it for a long time is there's the north and south polarities of the sun. Obviously, they meet at like an equatorial rim on the star. And where these two fields meet, it's it's balanced. So there's obviously no positive or negative charge. It's perfectly balanced. Now, this neutral sheet happens to shift by one bit, and he discovered this from his calculations, every 187 years. Like, it fluctuates to the, the plus or the minus every 187 years. And that shift would shunt along the whole sequence of the 97 microcycles uh, in that total which gave basically gave him a total cycle of 18,139 years. So in his, and this is, these are the numbers you need to remember, like 18,139 years. Well, it sounds like a yuga cycle. This w- Yeah, this was a greater period. This was when the sun goes through all of its ups and downs, all of its fluctuations, all of its microscopic shunts up and down, and it completes this full rotation, 18,139 years. This period seemed to be the most important of all, and it was divided up into three, 
three periods of third of sorry, 19 sunspot cycles and two periods of 20 cycles, giving you 97 in all. Here's the thing though. Each time one of those periods came to an end, the polarity of the sun's magnetic field, like the whole thing, reversed. It was like a pole shift for the sun. The whole thing flipped. Is that recognized? Is that actually just, you know, mainstream science recognize that occurs? I'm not sure. Hmm. Because I haven't, I've heard of, you know, obviously Earth pole shifts, but not the sun. Do a quick Google while I'm explaining this. It's probably easily looked up. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to look it up today, but he seems to suggest that it is understood and then that his numbers, at least his numbers confirmed this. So, once more, Cotterell tried to bring his ideas to the attention of the scientific establishment because obviously this is a big deal. The NASA page that talks about it is 404. Is it? A cover-up. Well done, NASA. It's a cover-up. It's probably just a lack of funding. But you did uh, find a link that... It just says that it's... Uh, the sun does a flip at science.nasa.gov, but it doesn't actually... No, it doesn't say anything else. Maybe it does. It must. Closed loops near the end of the equator. But I can't get into it because it's 404. I'll look Is there it up. another source? I'll just have a look. Because obviously when you type in pole shift, you just get, brothers and sisters, the pole shift is coming. Just search for sun uh, magnetic field flip. <laughs> sun magnetic field flip. Uh, so obviously, yeah, the scientific establishment didn't want to talk to him. Nature rejected his uh, submission. When he wrote to the Royal Astro Astronomical Society to see if his paper could be included in their journal, he was refused. When he asked for a reason, they said there wasn't enough known about the true shape of the sun's magnetic field to construct a working model, and therefore his theories were invalid. His rebuttal to them was, all my data comes from you guys. Like, this is what I'm working from, is your data. So the Smithsonian Magazine is saying the sun's magnetic field flips every 11 years. Is that part of the sun? cycle. It must be. So there you go. Okay. The field reverses every 11 years. Well, he's saying there's something more drastic occurring at the end of every single one of these periods in that greater 18,139 years. Like something more significant. So hmm. he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't completely discouraged. He pressed on despite not getting the attention that he, he felt that he deserved. And he had no idea at the start of all of this that he would have stumbled upon something far more exciting, though perhaps worrying, because he started to realize that there was this um, period of subdivisions that really interested him. And again, I'll go back to this image here. This 18,139 years at the end there, that one complete cycle of the warped neutral sheet this last period, he said, if you break this down into its constituent parts, he could see that there were five time periods included in it, which were corresponding with changes in polarity of the sun's magnetic field and the shifting of the warped neutral sheet. And he actually gives the calculations for those here. So these are very large cycles. But why is it 19, 20, 19, 19, 20? He said when he broke down the data, this is what he got out of the computer. This is what was giving him. There were these fluctuations in these five periods. Remember, right. he said that there were three periods uh, of 19 cycles and that there were two periods of 20. Oh, and this I accounted see, right. for the fluctuations over these grand periods. Mm -hmm. When he calculated these out, 
he was getting numbers like in that final period, 20 times 187 years, that's 1,366,040 days. Now, it's this number, this 1,366,040 days that is really interesting. And in order to explain why this is so interesting, we've got to stop here and go and take a look at the Aztec and Mayan calendars. Now, the, the ancient Mayans and the Aztecs, they used primarily two calendars. The first was a repeating cycle of 260 days. This was called the Zolkan. The second was a vague year of 365 days. The use of the 260-day sorry, 260-day calendar, the Zolkan, is very ancient. It goes back to at least the Olmecs. It's probably older. So the effect of having these two cycles uh, of the, the Zolkan and this vague year, the 365 days similar to ours, um, meant that each day had two na- names. So you'd have, for example, three Akbal, four Kumu would be a particular day. It's two names. But because the two cycles were of different lengths, any specific dual combination of day names didn't recur for 52 vague years, which was 73 Zolkans. Mm-hmm. So you start to get these larger cycles. So this period of time is often referred to as the Aztec century or the calendar round. Uh, really long periods, like 18,980 years. Now, this, uh, sorry, not years, that's days, 18,980 right. days. So this calendar, this calendar round was adequate for recording dates in the recent past, but it obviously had limitations. The the Mayans got around this by developing a second way of recording time, and this was called the long count. Now, today in the West, obviously, we use the Gregorian calendar, uh, and all our dates are pegged to a specific event. And that event is obviously the birth of Christ. That's AD 0. And we use the calendar based on that one event to you know, measure events that occurred in the past. And we can even look to events that occurred in the future. And we don't even think twice about it. This is just our calendar. This is how we think. This is how we operate. It's part of our daily lives. But obviously, this is only one type of calendar. This is only one type of way of measuring of course. time. Yeah. But in Mesoamerica, uh, their point of reference obviously wasn't the birth of Christ. It was the birth of Venus. And this is referenced multiple times in the Mayan codexes. And this is done in, they go into great detail in the history of this, how this was discovered, how fortunate it is that we even have anything left over from the Mayans and the Aztecs after the conquistadors went through. But he points out that in order to understand the significance of that number I mentioned earlier, that he calculated on his supercomputer, the 1,366,040 days, you got to understand this this Mayan calendar, this vague year of 365 days, this round calendar of 52 years, they had this base 20 system to do all this. They counted in units called weenals. And this is how they started to divide their periods of time, their larger periods of time. I'll put the image up on the screen here. So they had 20 days or kins, which would be one weenal, which was a 20-day month. They then had 18 weenals, which would be one tun, that's a 360-day year. 20 tuns would be one cartoon, 7,200 days. And 20 cartoons would be one baktun, 144,000 days. 
There's that number again. Yeah, same 144,000, 7,200. And of course, we've looked at this in great detail on previous shows. It's mentioned in the Book of Revelation. It's mentioned in Norse mythology. There's New Age religions that talk about uh, the 144,000 souls coming from the planet Venus with Sanat Kumara. It's funny how a lot of these are connected to the planet Venus. And the Mayans traced it back their calendar to the birth of Venus. Now, the German researcher uh, Ernst Forstermann, he came around in the mid-1800s. And again, this is huge history of all the individuals who essentially pieced all this together from the scraps that were left over after the conquistadors went through Mesoamerica. You know, there were the friars who scribbled things down, mm. you know, very hastily before it was all burnt and destroyed. And it was through their hidden notes that eventually, like 400 years later, these the German guy or an American guy comes along, an English guy comes along, and they start to piece it all together. It wasn't until the 1800s that we're actually able to look at the Mayan calendar and go, okay, so this two buckton or whatever it is, is actually referring to like 400 BC or something. Yep. We could match those dates. Now, this, this German guy, Forstmann, he was working on what's known as the Dresden Codex, which mm -hmm. is one of these documents that was left behind. One of these documents was a compiling of the Mayan uh, data. He was able to show how it contained a Venus table for calculating the movements of Venus in its cycle of approximately 584 days. Also, they had lunar tables for calculating eclipses. But this Forsterman realized that five pages of this codex were given over to computations concerning Venus. It seems that the Mayans weren't so much concerned with the day-to-day -day movements of the planet, but with its average cycle over long periods of time. This is where it starts to get interesting because it's those long periods, those long cycles. Why would a civilization be so concerned with this? You know, they're not really too interested in, okay, it's going to be here this day, it's going to be here that day. They're looking at thousands of years. Where's Venus going to be in a thousand years' time, 2,000 years' time? That's a good question. Yeah, why would they be concerned about that? Why would you be thinking that far into the future? He says the Venusian year can be as short as 581 or as long as 587 days, but the average is 584. And this number and its multiples, you could see that the Mayan priests were specifically interested in this number. It appears all over the codex. And what has proved to be of even greater interest, though, is their inclusion of two dates, which give rise to the super number from the Mayan codex. So they had this date connected to this super number connected to the birth of Venus, which again is the inception point of their whole calendar. Their entire time system revolves around this moment. So let's take a look at their super number. Let me bring it up on screen here. Is it somewhere around 1.4, 1.2 million? So... The Zolkans would be, so this is their year, 260 times, it's 5,256 of those 260-year periods. It's 3,744 of their 365-day calendar. It's 2,340 Venus cycles. It's 1,752 Mars periods. And it's 72 of those large Aztec centuries, the 18,980 days. Yeah. 
And when you calculate those numbers, whether it's 260 by 5,256 or 584 times 2,340, what you get is 1,366,560. That's incredible. It's incredible. Maurice's number with his supercomputer at the time in his university that calculated the flipping of the sun's polarity was 1,366,040. See, and this is where it's like, it, it's almost like these ancient cultures, you know, lacking the, the modern technological know-how, made observations. And through those observations, they observed nature and were able to pick up on the cycles. How do the ancient Mayans measure the magnetic polarity of the sun? There must have been, it has to be an observation of some kind. But what? I have no idea. And why were they interested in it? Even if they could observe that, why would they base their calendar on it specifically? I mean, why not just use the the just the day the and procession night. or why not yeah, why not use the seasons? Like why not do what we do? Why is it so elaborate you, that it, you need two specific calendars and vast stretches of time and these bizarre cycles to measure this magnetic flux of the star? Well, are you inferring something that they had an advanced technology, that they were contacted well, by well, aliens. Let's get one thing straight. The two numbers aren't the same. So the Mayan super number is one point, sorry, 1,366,560. Mm-hmm. The author's super number that he calculated with the supercomputer super was 1,366,040. So what's that? It's uh, 520 off. Uh, but when you're talking about such a large number, I don't know if that really matters, does it? Well, once he saw this, he immediately realized it's too close to be a coincidence. Yeah. Like it's too close because he was just reading some random Mayan book while he was doing all this research on the sun. And he's like, what? How have they got my number? And it's totally from two different angles, right? The Mayans are looking at this event, the birth of Venus, and he's looking at the sunspot cycles. So could the two numbers be related? Now, his division of the greater period of reversals of the sun's polarity did seem to mirror the Mayan conception of earlier ages. And uh, like his data, because remember, it's so complicated with all my (laughs) periods I've got here. So this is his sunspot data that indicated five periods, like five greater cycles, right? And for the Mayans they had, and the Aztecs, they had five suns. And they understood that we we're in the age of the fifth sun. Are they gods? Do they classify them as gods or anything like that? Well, but do they personify them? Well, they—I mean—they worshipped the sun, and that's why they were cutting open people's chests with obsidian knives and pulling their hearts out. Is because they believed that human sacrifice would keep this final age of the sun going, because they knew from their history, from their ancestors that once this final period of the sun concluded, it would be the end of their civilization. So they tried to keep it. This is like the, it didn't work. the perversion of the Aztecs. Uh, you know, they, they took from the Toltecs this occasional human sacrifice and put it on Ramped overdrive it yeah. and just were throwing like, what is 20,000 people? Oh, yeah, something horrendous. Just to open a temple. Um, yeah, rivers of blood. Rivers of, of blood. The and the conquistadors and the friars spoke about the stench and... It's just disgusting. But um, it is odd that it matches with his sunspot cycles 
Um, so hang on, were they were they spiritually communicating with something that was providing them this information? Well, I don't know about that, but it seemed like they were talking about this same shifting reversal of the sun's magnetic field. So this is where Maurice Cotterell starts to think, is this the mechanism behind the collapse of one age and the start of another age? It's a good question. Is this fluctuation in the sun's magnetic field triggering the transitions between the yugas? Maybe. The vast cycles well, of time. Does it cause people to go crazy? Does it, you know, cause people to become more lazy? Like if it can affect what your personality type is at the moment of conception, can whatever this cycle is affect people the way that people think? And so society just collapses and then the new cycle starts. Is that what's occurring? Yeah, or is there something more drastic on a physical level that occurs? Yeah, potentially. When when it go, the sun goes through this major cycle flip. Well, he immediately flew to Mexico to investigate the artifacts, to look at the Aztec um, you know, remains, the pyramids. And what did he find? Well, this is where he realized there were connections between his number of 1,366,040 and the Mayan number of 1,366,000. Why can't I say that? You've too had much, tea, that's too much why. coffee. Mm. 366,560. He realized that if you divide each number by 260, which remember is the number of days in that first Mayan calendar, you get 5,254 for his number and 5,256 for the Mayan number. It's very neat. Mm. It's off by two cycles of their 260 year calendar. If the calculations were a coincidence, you would suspect it to be off by like 1.5. Three yeah. or <laughs> some yeah. fraction, but it's a perfectly neat division. And then while he was working at the university, and there's whole chapters of him looking at the artifacts in um, Mexico and realizing he was onto something, but I'm going to skip over those to hit the broader picture. He goes back to the UK and he's looking at the university, he's working at the university, and he discover, discovers something vital. He's analyzing the way the sun's polar and equatorial magnetic fields interact. And he and this is you know that joining of the polarities that I was talking about that narrow the band, neutral band the neutral band or whatever it's called they because they're fluctuating there's certain periods where they get closer together they kind of come in closer together and that cycle of them coming closer together is 260 days oh no so again it's just i just so but that it does my head in it, like how yeah. can these ancient people who had Exactly what like they had stone cow. temples, but the rest of their civilization was like mud houses. How did they understand this? It's mind blowing. Did they just take it from an earlier, more advanced civilization, and it's just been passed down from the Olmecs potentially eventually yep. through to the Mayans and the Aztecs? Yep. Does it come from some advanced civilization that we have no knowledge of that had advanced astronomy that had the tools to measure this? Or were they in contact with the group that gave them that, that information? Well, using this number, he discovers how the ancient Mayans came to that super number. You see, when he was looking at all their inscriptions and all their carvings and all their monuments, he realized that they seem to omit that 260-year period in their calendar system. Like, it seems to be, like in calculations of dates and legends, it seems to be missing for some reason. It's a bit conspicuous. And the number nine is also very sacred to them. Like they have the nine lords of the night, which are like the gods that 
control the underworld and control the yin versus the yang. And that number nine is missing from inscriptions and calculations as well. And he thought it's it's almost so obvious that it's missing. It's by design. It's almost like a clue that these numbers are missing because they're so important to their cosmology. Yet if you go through the codexes, they're not used in these big calculations. So he takes the Mayan calendar cycle sequence and he multiplies each cycle by nine, which refers to those nine gods, the nine gods of the night. They're called the nine lords of the night. And he also inserts the missing 260 number in his calculations. And what does he get? And if you're watching the video, do I have this here? Or did I not? I don't think I put it in. <laughs> it's like if you're the, watching the video, you won't see this. <laughs> it's like the key bit of information. I'm going to have to... Let me just try and skip to the end. Where's the Jeopardy music? Bam, this is why bam, I need my own bam, soundboard. Bam, 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 bam. There it is. 144,000 times nine plus 7,200 times nine plus 360 times nine plus 260 times nine plus 20 times nine equals 1,366,560. He basically cracked the code yeah. of how they came up with that insane number. And I, I still... I'm still struggling to understand why. Well, I mean, this is the thing, though. I mean, you look for elaborate, and we, you know, crossed over a different elaborate, you know, um, possible you know, ways that they attain that information, but it comes down to mathematics. It really is that they were just that sophisticated with mathematics. Yeah, but so they maybe that's why. They worshipped, they understood that this came from the sun. They understood that there was this cycle of the magnetic fluctuations of the star. They worshipped the sun god. They killed people to try and keep the sun god happy. So at some point... Yeah, they were very superstitious, clearly. They must have understood this at a really fundamental scientific level. Yeah, uh, but people can understand things at a fundamental scientific level and still be absolute dickheads. You know, it's like, that doesn't rule out you know, their beliefs and any, anything else and some of the ridiculous things that they were engaging in. And again, that goes back to this idea that it was a prior civilization that discovered this and what was passed down was just the religious observer observances mm. of the Toltecs and the Aztecs that followed. So, Well, you know what? The information probably came from a society that discovered it in a previous cycle roughly 1.3 million years ago. But remember, all of this ties back to the original conception of their calendar, which was the creation of Venus. So let's address that. What is the creation of Venus? Why would the birth of Venus be a thing? Yeah, Venus is bright in the sky, oh, right. but why would it? Why would there be a birth of Venus? Is it a comet or something? It's like the Velikovsky stuff? Well, I've got some audio here of Maurice Cotterell, and I'll link to this full presentation in the show notes. This is over three hours. He gives this massive presentation. I managed to find this little bit of audio where he's basically explaining what it was what the birth of Venus was. Let's take a listen. And we need to ask, why did they worship another number 520 days longer? 1,366,560 days long. And they measure their calendar from the year 3113 BC. Because they knew in the year 3113 BC, 5,000 years ago, the magnetic field of the sun reversed. They know that. And the planet Venus reversed. The Earth did not reverse because we're further away. 
but they called it the birth of Venus. And that's why Venus now is rotating upside down. And it's very slow because it used to rotate that way quickly, but when it got turned upside down, it slowed down. One day it will stop and start turning the other way again. So they called it the birth of Venus. So this gets to the core of what's so powerful about this cycle. He claims that at the end of one of these cycles that he's calculated, the 18,000-year mark, whatever it was, that there was some kind of solar wind, Carrington event-type output that was so, so much more uh, powerful in magnitude than than anything before it that it actually altered Venus. Venus is closer to the sun than we are, obviously, like he's explaining, and it flipped it upside down. And that's why Venus is the only planetary body that has a reverse spin. It's going in an opposite direction oh, to, I the wasn't rest, aware of that. to the rest of the body. Right. And he claims this is because, well, it was basically flipped. It is still going the right way, but it was flipped. And that's why its its rotation is is altered. He claims eventually, as he said, it'll slow down and start going in the right direction again. But there was some event. And this ties into Velikovsky's ideas. Yeah that there was some kind of magnificent event in the planetary bodies in the ancient past that is remembered in, leg- in legends. Well, didn't and- Velikovsky describe something being ejected from, was it ejected from Jupiter? Yeah, see, this is, there's like, he talks about collisions, but this is where he differs from Cotterell. Cotterell claims that it was this uh, magnetic solar output that right. caused this. And what it would have done is that it would have made the poles of Venus uh, incredibly bright. And it almost would have looked like another sun in the sky. Uh, he said it would have been bright enough to oh, cast a shadow. Because it would have been essentially what, like a, an aurora borealis kind of show. But but obviously not that way. But the lighting, like it would have been the same effect. Uh, the amount of energy going into it, it would have caused that to, to light up. So yeah, you would have been able to see it. From day that. and night, you'd be able to see it. It would be so incredibly bright. It, it would have a massive flare to it. It really would look like there's another sun up there. And so then you start to understand why this would be a point in history where it's like that of course it'd be observed our calendar that's the start of everything this is the birth of venus and from here he turns his attention to the aztec calendar and this is the famous sunstone and he talks about the wheel around it and the gods that symbolize these different ages that are in this wheel, the different suns that are represented in this wheel. And this is where we start to see this correlating with the Yuga cycles. So you've got the first sun, the Matlakti, which is 4,008 years. Uh, The second sun's duration was 4,010 years. In that first sun period, and if you correlate this to the Yugas, this was the golden age. Right, And this is when people live for longer lifespans, morality was much higher, people were of a larger stature, greater intelligence, higher technology. The Aztecs and the Mayans said in this first sun, the people were giants. Uh, but eventually the age came to an end. The sun was destroyed by water. It was called the Fludge Deluge Permanent Rain. Men were turned into fish. Um, some say that only one couple survived protected by an old tree, and eventually they repopulated the earth, and this led to the second sun, the second age. And this was 4,000 years in duration. It talks about then the sun being destroyed by the god of wind. Man was turned into a monkey in order to cling to trees to survive. One man and one woman standing on a rock were saved, Um, and then it proceeded into the third age, the third sun 
This was 4,081 years. Men, the descendants of the couple who were saved, and it talks about the fruit they ate. But eventually that world was destroyed by fire. And this now went into the fourth sun, obviously the fourth age. This began 5,000 years ago. This was the age in which Tula was founded. Um, Is this the age of air? Did we do that one? Doesn't He doesn't say much on there. I didn't clip it out. But this immediately made me think of Bibu. Bibu Dev Mizra, who writes for us occasionally, he's got an upcoming book on the cycles of the Yugas, this uh, Indian concept of these cycles of time. And he talks about, in one of the early chapters, because I've got a preview copy, the Mahabharata, the ancient Indian text, mm-hmm. talks about the second sun. And Bibu says there's a lot of mystery around this and no one really knows what this means. He says the most intriguing metaphors, one of the most intriguing metaphors in the Mahabharata are the cryptic references to a second sun that rises at the end of a yuga cycle. It's generally been portrayed as an effulgent, all-destroying force. It says in the text that, on occasion I could not gaze at uh, Jaya who seemed to be possessed of the energy of the all-destroying sun that rises at the end of the yuga. And I, heard, I read this about the second, this second sun. Is this the birth of Venus? Is the ancient well, Indian plausibly. text talking about this event as well? Is it referring to this event, the flipping of Venus and some kind of uh, major output of energy from the planet? Again, Velikovsky and others said that this would make it incredibly bright like a second sun. And still on that thinking of these cycles, Bibu then starts to talk about the Hopi concept mm-hmm. of the ages, right? And he goes into the Hopi creation stories that tells us of the three previous worlds that were destroyed by these cataclysms. And today we're living in the fourth world, which too will suffer the same fate, he writes, as the previous ones, if humanity lives out of balance and forgets his obligations to the creator and the environment. And I wanted to quickly mention the Hopi story because it features our favorite ant people. Remember the ant people? How could I forget? (laughs) But it gives us... A, a strange tie-in to the Mayans. And I think this might actually, Bibu might give us a clue as to who the ant people actually were, what their true nature was. Well, he, he details that the first people in the first world, the Tokpela, this is in the Hopi cosmology, they led a pure and happy life. It was called the endless space. They multiplied, spread over the earth. They could communicate communicate telepathically. It really was the golden age. Everything was perfect. Everything was amazing. But soon they became engrossed in materialism and desires and forgot about the plan of creation. And the first signs of rift and discord started to appear. They became suspicious of one another, accused one another wrongfully until they became fierce and warlike. There was no rest, there was no peace, and it wasn't long before, you know, the creator God appeared and told them this world must be destroyed and another one created so you can all start over again. Because they stuffed up creating the ant people. Yeah, they, and- well, they screwed up. They, the, the selected Hopi who were pious were instructed to follow certain clouds in the sky and certain stars at night to reach a specific place. Um, and, and essentially, they were led to a big mound. And this mound is where the legendary ant people lived. This is what is so fascinating about the Hopi story, is it mentions these other beings, these ant people that were commanded to open up their home. They lived within the earth. And the Hopi that were selected to survive, they went down into 
the the home world of these ant people and they were you know kept cool they were kept safe the ant people made sure they had food and they essentially lived with them for a while while the creator god destroyed the earth mm. like completely obliterated it uh, it was rain and fire and the opening up of volcanoes and it took a long time for the world to cool off and the second world was created and the ant hill has opened up and it's like okay you can come out now but don't screw up again or I'm going to destroy the world again. It's kind of the traditional folkloric story of Fallout. Pretty much, yeah. It's Fallout. Think about it's it's, ancient, it's fallout. ancient Fallout. It really is. That was their vault. Yeah. The ant people had their vault. And they come out into the second world and the people build houses, they produce artifacts, and again, they start to multiply. Civilization builds up, but quarrels begin, wars begin. They forget about the creator. And once again, the creator God appears before a few righteous people and tells them, Sorry, you screwed up again. This world needs to be destroyed. And again, he calls on the ant people. The ant people open up their underground world for the Hopi who are to be saved from the catastrophe. And uh, this time, the two gods that control the rotation of the earth, they are told to meet, which, and they essentially describe a pole shift because the earth stops rotating, the mountains all change, the landscape con- completely changes. It's like they, they describe a Charles Hapgood-style catastrophe pole shift. And eventually, the Earth's rotation is restored. And once again, uh, the ant people let the Hopi out of their underground caverns, and they repopulate the Earth, and we're now in the third world. And again, it's the same story. They, yeah. But each time they come out, the world is beautiful because it's just been created, but it's slightly not as good as the previous world if that makes sense. Like, it's a slightly, it's a slight downgrade every age. It's like when you get leftover pizza and you microwave it. It's still hot and it's still pizza. Yeah, it's still delicious it's pizza. not as good as what it was first it's cooked. Nowhere near as good. And they're noticing this every time they come out. It's like, yeah, it's a beautiful new world, but it's, I just can't, can't help but notice. It's, the resolution isn't as good. And so this keeps happening. And it's interesting in the third world, they mentioned that when, the Hopi start and the people of the earth that have multiplied, they start to deviate from God's law. They they start to build these flying shields. And according to the Hopi, these flying shields can fly over to a big city and carry out guerrilla-style attacks, like actually bomb enemy cities. And Bibu, of course, relates this to the legends of the Vimana Vimanas, yeah. in the Hindu culture, the flying ships. And... Again, the creator God comes out. He's like, you guys screwed up. You need to get back down with the ant people. Huge flood. Whole place gets flooded. It's the great deluge. And out they come into the fourth world today. And this is where we are today. And the Hopi describe their legends of how they came to the Americas and how they are the the, the first people in the nation. And Just tell us, Ben, how long have we got left? Well, the reason I wanted to mention this story is the referencing of the ant people because Bibu points out that in the Hopi legends, obviously this is mystifying, like who are the ant people? They're very similar to dwarves, the, the European concept of dwarves. Right. Like they're living underground. So they're not actual ant kind of like humanoids. They're Well, this is what's always confused me and we've joked about it in the past and been like, yeah, they're like weird alien ant people. They've got weird bug eyes and they're like aliens. But... 
If you look at the European folklore of the dwarves, it does kind of match with the Hopi descriptions of the ant people. Like they were proficient in mining. They could create magical artifacts. They had this, again, underground home that was safe from anything, hidden passages in the hills. This was, this was the same in the dwarves in the West and the ant people. But what I found amazing is that Bibu points out the, these same dwarves are mentioned by the Mayans. Really? Yeah, they figure prominently in Mayan civilization. They're looked upon as wise, skillful, clairvoyant, and they're great builders. They not only have their underground constructions, but the Mayan civilization attributed the archaeological sites, the huge ancient roads and ancient constructions, to the people that came before them who were these dwarves. They called them the Zaya Muinkob. And Eric Thompson, who Bibi points out is one of the most eminent scholars of Mesoamerican archaeology, he wrote that these Zaya Muinkob dwarves built the now ruined archaeological sites, the great stone roads, while the world was still in darkness, before the sun was created. Now, is this talking about our star or is it the birth of Venus? I think it's referring to the before the birth of Venus, before this event. Yeah. These dwarves had magical powers, and listen to this, needed only to whistle to bring together stones in their correct positions in buildings. It sounds like Coral Castle. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. Using frequency, sound frequency to levitate stone. And as per the beliefs of the Mayans, the dwarves live below the surface of the earth. Now, Thompson, this Eric Thompson archaeologist, he made a really fascinating observation. That Mayan word for the dwarves, the Zai uh, Muinkob. There's a Yucatec tradition. There's a term for Zai. What does Zai mean in that tradition? It means ant. The Mayans. Interesting correlation. The Mayans were talking about ant people. Ant people doesn't mean weird looking, freakish, alien looking things. It means dwarves. It means this um, skillful, clairvoyant, wise race. That, I mean, could they even though be like dwarves or could they be like mole people? Could my, Mole people. I'm over the mole people. <laughs> How fickle are you? Just, I'm sick no, of them. But, but what I'm they saying... They had their chance to come out of their holes and they haven't appeared, so <laughs> screw them. I'm not interested. It's all about the ant people ant now. Ant people now, okay, right. The dwarves. Yep. Um, so the Mayans referred to the dwarves as ant men, the same term used by the Hopi. Yeah, that's weird. It's it's a weird correlation. So when does the Mayan calendar say the cycle ends? Well, that's obvious. <laughs> Are you saying like when's the end date? Yeah, how long have we got? It's December twenty first, twenty twelve, dude. Oh, of course. Right, <laughs> of course. Uh, that's the end of the. So then, what's next? Okay, so I thought about this. Right, how long is the sun cycle? Yeah, do a quick pseudo effigy cough. Yep. Pardon me. How long is the sun cycle? Just the, our general understanding today, like the NASA. Eleven suns. years. Eleven years, right? Eleven point one years. Okay, so when did the Mayan cycle end? Twenty twelve. December twenty twelve. So what's twenty twelve plus the sun cycle of eleven years? Well, if it's and it's been slowed down, right? So that's twenty twenty four. Twenty twenty three. No, but oh. December twenty twelve plus eleven years is December twenty twenty three. No, but, no, but if it's one month as well, so it'd be twenty twenty four. Don't fuck up my numbers, please. (laughs) 
I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to give it, I'm trying to extract. So that's the thing. Everyone will be sitting there in December going, oh, it's going to happen. We're off by one month because it's not 11 years. It's 11 years, one month. It is 11.1. You are correct. So we'll be in 2024. So happy new year. Yeah, January 2024. Surely not. That's... Surely not. Like, I mean, I know that some people will grab this and run with this and just be like, Mysterious Universe said the world's ending in 2024. BB's got a date, actually. What? For his upcoming book, but I'm not going to reveal it. You'll have to wait till it comes out. Why does he have a date? He's got a date. He calculated a date. Like, he's got... From what? 500 pages of research of the Yuga cycles and the different ages of time in all these different cultures of the world. Right. And he's crunched down the different calendars and the different perspectives and the different ancient texts. Yep. And he's like, I've calculated, I've got a date. All right, we won't give it away so I can sell his book, but is it is it within our lifetime? Yeah. It's pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. <laughs> a hair's breath away. That's, that's not Something good. to look forward to. I don't know if it's to look forward to. So I don't know if I got any answers out of that, but it was an interesting look at the work of Maurice Cotterell. The Mayan Prophecies is the book Unlocking the Secrets of Lost Civilization. You, you can't deny this stuff though, right? I know that we were kind of saying the stuff, well, maybe it's, you know, he's a bit crazy. Maybe he's gotten too deep into it. But when you lay it out the way that you did, in a, you know, in quite a, in a, a simplified math for something that is so you know complicated, when you start looking at that math and looking at his reasoning, it's pretty difficult not to walk away from that Without going, he might have been onto something. Yeah, I think he's onto something. Uh, I, I, he's not necessarily crazy. I think at the very least, what you can understand from ancient history is that there were extremely advanced civilizations that were able to make these observances and pass them on to less the, advanced civilizations. the less advanced civilizations that followed. Uh, and there were these catastrophic events in the past that were re recorded and they were so important to some cultures, they became the central core of their way of measuring time. They became the measuring point of their civilization. Look at our civilization. We have this event, the uh, birth of Jesus Christ, as this core central point that everything we understand about history and the future revolves around. For them, it was this birth of Venus. But they also, fascinatingly enough, seemingly have flood myths. And we have flood myths as well. Yeah, they've so got the flood like myths. There's multiple mentions of the earth being destroyed by fire in a previous cycle mm -hmm. as well. So these memories, I think, are real and they've been recorded through time because people observe them. People exactly. live through them. Yep. They were so horrific. They, yeah, that they're they, so traumatic. They just stuck with us in these legends and these uh, these myths. And they're they're absolutely going to happen again. Yeah, it's true. Because they're, well, cyclic. they're cyclic. That's why they tied it to a calendar. That's why they had these measurements of vast amounts of time. They were looking at these cycles. They wanted to know when it was going to occur again, perhaps as a warning, perhaps just to understand it. But I think that's a certainty whether we can make the calculations today or not. I mean, what does that say about our civilization? We think we're so advanced. We're not. But we haven't made these observations. We haven't made these, um, we don't have and a general understanding of these cyclical events. It's worse. We're so arrogant that we would ridicule anyone that does. We still view history as this thing that's constantly ascending upwards. It's yep. this constant progression mm. from this starting point, you know, far in the past. And we're on this just trajectory that has continued unabated. But clearly that's not the case. Yeah. 
Clearly, there were uh, more advanced civilizations before our own. Well, one thing I only saw, you know, recently, and I want to do more digging into it because I don't know, because there's, you know, there's this controversial debate going on in Australia at the moment. Um, but it, it actually made me think about, you know, this progression of civilizations and, you know, and so the biggest thing at the moment is there's this argument that, you know, Aboriginals have been here the longest, right? Uh, but there was this uh, academic that's claiming that the whole Homo forenses or florenses Apparently, they may have been in Australia and they were pushed because they were like pygmies. They were pushed out of Australia by the uh, Aboriginal people that were coming down across the land bridge. So yeah, it's, it's like insane. To, like, they pushed out another group. Yeah, there's there's always some group that's been that's conquered and pushed out. Yeah. Did just, you see the uh, there's a Kiwi politician in New Zealand? He's and he's in the far right party. But he said the other day that uh, Maoris aren't native. Really? They're not indigenous. Oh, but that's the thing, you have to come from somewhere. Well, it's like... But everyone's not indigenous because we all came from Africa. It depends on your... I don't believe that, but it depends on your definition. Well, according to, you know, our current understanding of it, right? Depen- we came out of Africa. It depends on your definition of indigenous because they say themselves where they came from and when they came to New Zealand. And it was, what, 5,000 years ago. Right. And then they came and killed and ate everyone that was on the island. <laughs> well, it, wasn't it the red... And that's where the story so of the indigenous? redhead giants and, and that stuff comes through. Well, so are, they, are they indigenous or not? Like, if their own legends and stories state that they came from somewhere else and it was like, you know, they're Polynesians. They came to this island, they killed the natives and ate them. I think I, I think that well, I don't a, think that makes you I don't think that makes you indigenous. No, it's it's a good ex- it really is though a good example of just how and I think this episode has highlighted that you know that we have this perception of this is history you know this is what I'm sorry but no like what we do know which is constant is that we keep on pushing the timelines back further and further and further and the idea that you know there was somewhere like we're the originals no matter who you are is actually quite absurd when you think about it. There may have been, in a previous cycle, another civilization that was here. And before that, another civilization. Well, in the book, they do go into very quickly some of the similarities between the Mayan burials, or the Olmec burials, Mayans as well, and the ancient Chinese. Really? From the Shang dynasty. They don't make that connection, but they point out, oh, it's weird that you know they were buried with jade in their mouths, just like the Chin- ancient Chinese were. Yeah, why would they do that? You know, and we we covered a plus. We did a plus show a couple of weeks back of research that suggested the Olmecs were from the Shang dynasty in China. They were refugees from the Shang dynasty. Uh, but what's fascinating about what we know of the Mayans in particular and their codex and their information, what was saved from the conquistadors is a lot of it came from monks and, um, you know, friars who saw the value in the, the, their legends, saw the values in their myths, were fascinated by their culture. They understood it was actually a high civilization mm. to varying degrees yes. and they wanted to preserve it. But the reason they wanted to preserve it is because they believed they came from Atlantis. Really? Yeah. A lot of these... A lot of these guys in the you know 1600s and later in the 1700s, the reason they kept manuscripts, the reason they kept these things around, and they were so desperate to get more information and find all these lost manuscripts, is they're like these these Aztec Mayan peoples. They're from Atlantis. They they came from this lost civilization. Like clearly, that's where they came from. Well, and that's one of the theories that's out there that there was this advanced civilization that had you know height of technology, observational, astronomical tools. And that's possibly how that information came through to them. Well, I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying of course they, they not, came but from Atlantis. I'm offering but a hypothesis. It, it was that understanding that existed in in the past that there was this 
higher civilization, that yes. something like Atlantis was real and plausible. Uh, there was this golden age that everyone had descended from. And it's just kind of ironic that that's why the information was kept. It was because of that, I guess, nobler belief that... Of golden age. Yeah, there was times. this golden age. There was like higher principles. Mankind was at a higher pedestal than we are now. Were we though? I mean, this is what happened with the Diplodocus. That's where we ended up. And that's what, you know, so... You mean the sex with dinosaurs Yes. Thing? Coming up in plus. <laughs> definitely not sex with dinosaurs. Uh, there is definitely a lot of ET sex coming up, though. I'll try to keep that uh, to a minimum, but it does come up quite frequently. I want to look into the phenomenon of mass abductions and how uh, there are multiple groups around the world that seemingly have been subjected to mass abductions where they've met other, abdu ab other abductees aboard craft and then have run into them later on in their lives. And it's led to some really intriguing... Uh, details about what is behind what you were describing, Ben, something like the program, that this group, whoever they are, are deliberately doing these types of abductions for a greater purpose. The program is real. Yeah, it really kind of changed my mind on the whole UFO thing. I just, I really don't care about UFOs that much. I care about who's in them. Well, uh, this one particular group, uh, it, which does relate to the moon stuff, does have insectoids that are connected to it. And of course, you know, we know from the program that it seems like the insectoids were the ones that are behind this stuff. The insectolins. Yeah, pretty gross. Coming up in plus, sign up today, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. Sign up today, you get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And of course, plus members get exclusive shows every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for Plus. Uh, sign up for the MU Max tier and you get access to the 16 plus years of podcasts in our back catalogue. Uh, plus members also get a higher quality MP3 version of the show. Uh, you also get a totally ad-free version of the show as well. And uh, you can watch the full-length videos on our website if you're a Plus member. Again, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash Plus. Help support your favourite show. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. Well done for not uh, coughing in that segment. Like you had uh, one cough. Mm.